0: Hello. It's great to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Dana and I have been away. First, I want to just say thank you to the elders for the generous gift of allowing us uh, that time away. And thank you to the staff who had to all work a little bit harder uh, to cover for us and did an excellent job this summer. You have been in good hands. And then finally, thank you. Thank you. that You were the kind of community that would allow that kind of generosity and knows that this church is not built around a personality, but around a person, Jesus Christ. And we are grateful for our time, um, and uh, but also grateful to be back. I'm a little nervous getting up here again. It's been a while, and so but just you guys, uh, just seeing your faces is giving me goosebumps on my bald spot. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, really, really thankful to be here. We had a tremendous time. And while we've been gone, um, one of the things that kind of stuck with me um, and stayed with some of my devotional time was just the reality of, of how there's bad stuff and good stuff happening at the same time all of the time. And really, actually, as, as followers of Christ and study, students of the Bible, we should not be surprised at that at all. I mean, Jesus himself told a parable about the weed and the wheats. And how they would, he said, don't pull the weeds out, let them grow up at the same time. And so while we've been gone, we had a tremendous time with family and friends um, and with, with doing, going, getting to go places and things. And while we, I know while we've been gone, some of you had tremendous times. You've traveled, you got some vacation, you played some golf, you, you, did some different things and it's, you look back over the summer and say, wow, it really flew by and it was a great time. But I'm also cognizant that at that same time, many of you um, had some difficult times. I mean, just the headlines alone with fires and hurricanes and military situations going on and COVID still that some of you lost loved ones this past summer, while others birthed brand new family members. And it's like that every time we gather. So before I begin, let me just pray for us. And, And wherever you are, in the room, outside, watching, we know that life in a community like this is always a mixed bag. Some are rejoicing. Some of you are really glad to see me. Others, not so much. And that's fair. That's fair enough. Um, get used to it. I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> but, but some of us have had just tremendous times to celebrate and others, others have had some losses that we grieve still. And so as we pray, wherever you are, this God that we sang about that wants us to know him, knows you, knows exactly where you are right now. In fact, he knows the thoughts you're thinking that you're not even speaking. So I want to challenge you just to honestly say, Father, I come as I am. I, you know who I am. You know what I'm thinking about. You know what I've lost. You know what I'm celebrating. You know what I can't wait to do this afternoon. You know what I can't, what I'm really dreading this week. And then invite him that he might have something for you in his word. Let's pray together. God, that is the desire of our hearts. That we would be mindful of you. That our hearts would be tender towards you. And that God, you would speak to us. Some of us have had a great summer. Some of us have had great things happen recently in our lives. New jobs, new family members, new new marriages, new all kinds of great things. We praise you for it because your word tells us you're the giver of all good things. But God, we are also aware that there's some in our, our family here, some online who have struggled with health, finances, employment, relationships, loss. You are big enough to meet us all. So wherever each of us are, Holy Spirit, come and teach us. that we might know about, more about your love for us and live in accordance with that love. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. In my life, my first introduction to loyalty was Jackson Junior High. Now I know, even when I say that, many of you are saying, what's a junior high? Well, it used to be back in the old days that the educational system here in the United States divided up elementary school to the sixth grade and then junior high was 7th, 8th, and ninth, and high school was 10, 11, 12. Now they call it middle school, okay. But Jackson Junior High is uh, where I first got introduced to loyalty and it's a building in Garland, Texas. When I attended it in first year in seventh grade in 1969, It was a three-year-old building. It looked exactly like that, except for older cars. (laughs) And there's a strange thing about this. I was at a weird time in my life. My father had left just a little over a year and a half earlier, and I knew that I needed something. I wanted desperately to belong to something, and I found that something in Jackson Junior High. Now, here's a weird thing. I do not remember a single word of the fight song of my high school. I also do not remember, and I played for the team and sang it every Friday, every fall. And then I do not remember a single word of the fight song of my college. Even though I played and they made us memorize it my freshman year, I cannot remember a single word, and yet Jackson Junior High forever, proud and true will be. We will stand and shout your praises. Jackson, hail to thee. Home of the Vikings, may you ever wave the blue and white. We will all uphold your glory, Jackson, Jr. High. Listen, I don't get it. You know how there are some things in your head that you wish weren't there? And yet... Jackson Junior High is the place where I pledged the, who I was to a group of young men. And I joined a football team and changed my entire lifestyle. Special thanks to Scott Collier. You're pr- going to listen to this sermon in Garland for having this picture. I don't remember that young man. I don't have any pictures of me at this time of my life. And so I don't even recognize that face, but I assure you it's me. And everybody standing in that picture, we are all committed to this process, but none possibly like me. Because it was not just about football, it was about life. I was, I was desperately searching for some kind of meaning desperately searching for some kind of a group to belong to. And I pledged my loyalty to that group of folks in a way that I never did again through high school and college until 1980. But that is another story. (laughs) Abraham teaches us that loving God Evokes in us a sense of loyalty, a commitment, an allegiance. And we're gonna spend, and we've spent a few weeks, we're gonna spend several more, because Abraham and his character is actually critical for us to understand what it means to have faith in God. He is called the father of our faith several times in the scriptures. He is listed as much as any other character in the Old Testament in our New Testament. In fact, he and Moses are tied for being mentioned the most. You cannot read the New Testament and not without some kind of an understanding about Abraham. And so this is time well spent, even if you don't really like the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, because you can't enter into the New Testament and really understand it unless you understand Abraham. And in fact, I would suggest to you, when you understand Abraham, the concept of grace even becomes more clear. Grace did not start when Jesus hung on the cross. A God full of grace is throughout the scriptures. And, he, and Abraham helps us with that. We see that God in the process of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures is making a series of promises and covenants with different people. Some people kind of arrange their study of the Scriptures around promises made to Noah, promises made to Abraham, promises made to David and others. But we're going to take a look at these specific promises that God makes to Abraham, who is still called Abram, at this point in the story. And Abraham's response over and over again as God promises land, he promises a nation, he promises a great name, he promises that he will be uh, the father of a great blessing for the whole world, not just his family. Abraham's response is really strange. Beginning in chapter 12 when God makes this promise and introduces himself to him, to Abram, Abram's response is that he builds altars. Now, you could read the story of Genesis and the story of Abraham and never even notice this, but four, at least four different times in just a few chapters, Abraham, when he comes face to face with God, builds an altar. Now, you learned last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, catch up, go back and take a listen. But you learned that the, the, at Abraham's time, altars were a very common thing. And in fact, they're common even in the scriptures. Almost 400 times you find the word altar, and another 600 and plus times you find the word um, for offering, which is almost always tied to an altar. And so this word for altar actually becomes one of the most common words in the scriptures. Makes the top 20 list. And we see Abraham building these altars. Now, what would that be? What's an altar? Well, an altar is a place that signifies something special, either in the place or in an event. And Abraham is doing that. And each time he he does this, he is pledging his loyalty to the God that is interacting with him. These commemorations of some kind of a special thing were very common and there weren't really much to them. Sometimes they simply built a statue. Other times they just stacked up some rocks. But they mark a place. They mark a decision of a will that says, I'm hearing you and I pledge my loyalty to what I'm hearing. Or in the words of the New Testament, Abraham believed God. And it would it'd be just as appropriate. as he, It was credited to him as righteousness, and he built an altar. He just starts to build these altars over and over and over again. And we see them in, in uh, Genesis 12, 7, 12, 8, chapter 13, verse 18, chapter 22, verse 9, over and over and over. God shows up, reaffirms Abraham, who's really kind of wavering in his faith, and says, I don't, How can I be the father of many nations? I still don't have a kid. And each time then he will build an altar. Now, this part is all very common. Very common, not a big deal. And then we get to Genesis 15 and we see a new kind of covenant, a new kind of promise. And in fact, archaeologists would tell us that this is a suzerain, a suzerain treaty Now you can read all about that in the book. I hope you've got the book. If you don't have the book yet, you can get it today. If you don't wanna pay for it, we've got it in PDFs. We've got it in where Dave, actually Dave reads his own book and it's quite entertaining. And so I would suggest that you do that. I don't really know how to get it, um, but I think you just go to Westgate slash resources and you can find it somewhere. Or you can go out in the lobby and say, hey, bald guy mentioned a book. How do we do it? What do we do? And you can get it. And let me just tell you this. If you're here and you're saying, man, I'd love a book, but I just don't. My budget right now is pretty tight. We would love to give you a book. You just go out into the lobby area and say, bald guy said I could have one. Okay? It'll all work out. So we've got this suzerain, and you can go to the book and kind of read about it. But it's basically the kind of treaty between not equals... That's not what the suzerain uh, treaty would be. It's a contract between someone who's inferior, both economically and socially, and someone who is superior. And there would be a covenant made that way. And basically, they would would do something that would show, if I don't follow through with this covenant, the person who's the lower is either going to become a slave or they're going to die. It's bad for them. It's all bad. Okay? Okay. But we're going to see a suzerain covenant or treaty in Genesis 15, and it's, it actually should blow your mind. Let me show it to you. I'm going to read, all, I'm going to read just about the whole chapter. After this, and the after this part is when Lot is helped by Abraham, the word of the Lord comes again in a vision to Abram. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord. Now, this is interesting because right there is the very first time we know this word Adonai. It means sovereign, master, ruler. First time used for God. Right here. Abram calls God a new name. And it's one of commitment loyalty. Master, Lord God. He's basically saying... Of all the gods, you are the God. What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? We don't know anything about Eliezer except for he's the head of Abram's household and he's a slave. And it's very common if you don't have an heir, then it would go to the head of your household, whoever that is, and you would designate that, that person as your heir. Abram says... You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now Abram's already old. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited to him as it was credited to him as righteousness. That statement is is quoted five times in the New Testament. Abram believed. He believed. He simply believed. And it is declared over him, credited over him, that he is righteous. And by righteous it means acceptable to God. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham's sovereign Lord, same name, master God. How can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these things to him, cut them into two and arranged the halves on opposites uh, opposites of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So Abram, without instruction, knows once he goes and gets these animals, he's to cut them in half. Now, this is kind of gross, right? This This is weird. But he knows that he's already familiar with, this would have been common practice to set up a treaty or a covenant or a promise between a master God... And a low life dude who, down here who's old and doesn't have any kids, that there's about, if he wants those things and they need to be cut in half and he sets them apart, like he would set a half over there at the table and a half right there, and then back there in the aisle somewhere be a half of another animal, and back there, gross, right? And back at the end, it's there and there, and then at the back, maybe the birds, one on each side. They're too small to cut in half. Now, the understanding is, is that in this suzerain treaty is that now the lesser vassal, the slave, the, the lower of the two will then walk between these animals that are cut in half. And what he is saying is, may it be unto me if I don't keep my word, may I be as this goat and heifer and all of the sheep, the animals that are there. May it be unto me. Weird. Okay, verse 11, can I just admit to you, this is such a weird verse. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. There are so many other things I'd like to know beside that. (laughs) Right? I mean, sometimes you just go, so? It must mean something, but I don't know. I checked all the commentaries. They skip it, too. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated mistreated there. First of all, bad news. 400 years. It's going to suck. It Reminds me of the promise that I have for Westgate. Take a new grip with your tired hands and stand firm on your shaky knees. I don't want tired hands. And I don't want shaky knees. But don't worry, there's good news. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go on to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Let me, let me just pause here. This is a really important verse when you start reading Joshua, because there's some people that are going to be killed by God's people in, in the book of Joshua that have been given 400 years to repent. And this right here is the evidence. So when you get to Joshua and you say, I can't believe God could be so unkind and so unloving. Well, he's been waiting 400 years and given them chance after chance after, chance after chance, after chance, after chance, after chance, after chance, after chance to repent. But that's another sermon. Verse 17, watch this. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the, print, the pieces. Rather than the, the lower pass through and say, may it be unto me if I don't keep my promises. Look what God does. In the image of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, he walks through the pieces of the cut up animals and says, may it be unto me if I don't keep my promises. Now, if your head's not partially blown right now, you're too familiar with grace. To your descendants, I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. the land of the Kenites, and then he goes on to name a bunch of folks. Some of them are, 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 will show up several times throughout the scriptures. They're, they're gonna be real antagonists to the people of Israel. Some of these, these groups of people are only mentioned one or a few times. But the promises that are made to Abraham are not dependent on Abraham's loyalty. They are dependent on God's Loyalty. Are you getting this? This is unheard of. This is scandalous. This is shocking. And then it begins to make sense why Abraham's the father of the faith. And we see it in Romans chapter 4. In Romans, Paul kind of lays out a legal argument, if you will, about the grace of God and what he has done on our behalf. And he takes the first two and a half chapters to kind of basically say, if you're messed up without God, you ain't got a chance. But God has intervened on your behalf. And then it's like in chapter four, he says, an exhibit A, exhibit A of, of the grace of God, Abraham. Abraham. And he says this, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, placed his loyalty, heard something and said, yes. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said, so shall your offspring be. See, and then without weakening in his faith. Now, understand here that that doesn't mean he doesn't blow it. One of, my, one of my convictions about the many altars that he builds is because I think he's made mistakes between the altars. And he's kind of going, ah, sorry. Here I am, I, I'm, I'm really serious this time. And it's over and over and we see he, he does the stupidest things. He does just crazy, dumb things. But he's still said to be the righteous one, the father of our faith. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He did not waver in it. He still believes God's going to do what he says. And because he believes that God will do what he says, he strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Doesn't do it perfectly. Doesn't do it great each day. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. He simply believed The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone. Now watch this. This is the part that's, I I hope it just messes you with your head a little bit and just wakes you up to Thanksgiving. It was not credited to him alone, but also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe. Who believe what? Who believe that a fire pot went between a couple of cut up animals? No, that will believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That just as God humbled himself and walked between these animals and said, Abraham, you've already screwed up a bunch and you're going to screw up a bunch more, but may it be unto me if I don't stay loyal to you. This ain't dependent upon how you act, Abraham. It's dependent on me and my love for you. And then Paul in exhibit A, when he says, here's how we understand grace, he uses Abraham to show us that just in the same way, Jesus Christ came down and died for our sins. Completely sufficient payment on your behalf. And it's all dependent upon his work and not your own. Well, then what must I do? The same as Abraham. Believe. Believe. Place your faith in. Next week, we'll talk about trust. Reckon it to be so. And what has this deliverance from Jesus done for us? Therefore, and I want to just include the first couple of verses of chapter 5 in Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified through the faith of believing, like Abraham believed, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith and to this grace in which we now stand. We boast in the hope, the hope of the glory of God. Men and women, you dwell under friendly skies. There's a God of heaven who has done all that he demanded that we by faith might have relationship with him. He demonstrated it for Abraham and he demonstrated it for us. That Jesus came, bore the full penalty of sin, took it to Calvary's cross, suffered that awful death and three days later rose. This is the gospel. This is the requirement. This is what he's asking you to believe, to place your faith in his work on your behalf. It's not new. God has always been this kind of God. He has always been the pursuer. He has always been the loving agent. He has always been the one that is extending himself. He knows you can't get to him. I don't care about I don't I know you're American, I know you're Silicon Valley, I know you drive an electric car. I know you look really nice and all together, you can't get there. And God loves you so much that he made a way that all you need to do is say yes to the gift. And by grace, you will be saved through faith. Will you say yes? Not perfectly. You're not going to get it all right. That's the deal. That's why Jesus died. If you could get to God, why would he kill his son? You can't get there. Oh, Steve, you don't know what I've done. I don't care. Oh, Steve, you know, I've, I've tried this before and it just didn't work. What do you mean didn't work? You know what you're saying when you say that? God didn't make my life easy. I thought it was the easy button. You said it was easy. I just put my faith in him. You put your faith in him and salvation is offered to you. Not easy button. It's hard to walk by faith. It's hard to place your allegiance in in the hands of a God you cannot see. But God's promises stand, and they stand based on Him, not you. Will you say yes? Recently, I was playing golf over my sabbatical with two guys, and they had demonstrated in the first six holes that they were aware of God's name, (laughs) but did not use it in a reverential way. And so I thought I might as well go ahead and talk about something spiritual. So I brought up the fact that um, I was a pastor, And they said to me, both of them, you know, I'd like to be closer to God. I said, really? What do you think it would take to get closer to God? And you can guess their answer. Well, we probably shouldn't talk the way we just talked for six holes, and we should probably, you know, be better people kinder and stuff and nicer. Perhaps you're here and you're thinking, Steve, I think this is a good deal. I'd like to get closer to God. I'm going to start today by cleaning up my act. And you missed it all. Just like they missed it all. There ain't no cleaning up an act. Will you clean up your act eventually? Probably. Probably because that's what love asks, and that's how love responds. But that doesn't get you in. The language you use to describe a poor golf shot does not keep you out or get you in. It is the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Will you believe or not? Please say yes. And those of you who think he's not really talking to me, I already said yes. Say yes again. Build another altar. Be like Abraham. Every time you hear about God's grace, you just re-up. Now, you don't become a Christian again, but you just re-up. This is a beautiful thing that God, the God of the universe, Would not start over, but would engage with us in this way and do all needed so that we could be saved. And then, because of this faith, there is therefore now no condemnation. When God looks at you, he doesn't look look at you and say, what a screw up. He says, my child. On a regular basis, as we gather together, we practice communion. Communion is an opportunity for us to, in some ways, re-up again, say yes to our faith, to celebrate and exalt the work of Christ, to recognize that the elements which represent Christ's body and blood is all that is needed All that is needed. And like they did on that very first century church, we gather together, we look at the elements. They're pretty sorry representations of the immensity of the gift. And by the way, if we had fresh baked bread, it would still be a sorry representation. the effectiveness of the element is whether it reminds us of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ not that it tastes good in your mouth Americans (laughs) and so on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took the bread and he blessed it and then he said take and eat This is my body that is broken for you. And then later on, In the supper, he took the cup of the covenant, promises that started with Adam and Noah and Abraham, David, others culminating in himself. And he said, this this cup represents my blood. That's why I became human, so that it could be spilt. A sacrifice needed to be made, and you could not make it. And so I make it on your behalf. Take it and drink it, because whenever you do, as often as you do, you celebrate what I've done for you until I come again and make all things right. Let's take the cup together. Master God, Adonai, Yahweh, Lord of the universe, creator of all that there is and ever will be. It is beyond our full comprehension, the extension of your grace towards us that your son, your perfect son, who has been for eternity past would leave the throne room and the glory of heaven and take on flesh and blood for us. And not only for us, but for all, any who would believe that you would extend yourself like that. God, we are amazed at your grace, we are humbled by your love. And if there are any here who for the first time said yes to this grace, made the simple statement that I believe, I believe you love me that much, I believe, I don't know what that means, but I believe. Give them a fresh sense of your reality. a sense of your spirit moving and birthing something brand new and then for those of us who have rested in the shadow of your wings we have we have dwelt underneath the shadow of your grace may we never grow tired of giving you glory and praise And we be, may we be ever mindful that it is not our effort, but it is your grace and your grace alone that saves. God, thank you for such a good plan. Thank you for such a wonderful expression of love. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name.